From Toronto, Canada, The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrin. Well, thank you for inviting me into your home, your long-haul truck, your taxi, your RV, camper, diner, your cabin in the woods. A big hearty welcome to those of you listening in on our flagship station, Zoomer Radio, AM 740 and 96.7 FM. Also, to those of you streaming us live on the Internet at zoomerradio.ca, or on the Zoomer Radio app. It's a free download. It's very cool. It's very retro. Uh, it looks like a transistor radio. Uh, and the uh, the Conspiracy Show app as well. Or you may be listening in uh, via the podcast at iTunes, Stitcher Radio, TuneIn, and TalkZone.com. Uh, and, of course, uh, to all of you listening in on one of our affiliates in the United States, uh, wherever and however you're listening to The Conspiracy Show, welcome. And it is so good to be here. We have a murder mystery for you tonight. <clears throat> Excuse me. A, uh, a British lawyer uh, who was active in the Conservative Party in Great Britain for about a decade. Uh, he started out investigating the mysterious circumstances surrounding the death of his best friend and uncovered a netherworld of illegal arms deals, political slush funds, high-level corruption, and Britain's 30-year secret role as America's hired gun. It's uh, real James Bond stuff, and we'll get to that in just a few moments. Uh, just a reminder that Season 4 of my television program, The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett, will debut soon. It's coming soon, folks. I can tell you that. Uh, across Canada on Vision TV. And as soon as I have the uh, the actual air date and the schedule, I will let you know. I'm just telling you, brace yourself, get ready. We have been working around the clock uh, to deliver the episodes uh, and are in the process of delivering them. Uh, I think they're, I think they're all just about uh, delivered now, just about finished. Uh, I know I'm just shaking off the effects of jet lag as we speak. Uh, of course, you know, the first three seasons uh, are in high rotation, as they say in the radio business. They're uh, on Vision TV. I'm not even sure at this point what date. Uh, I, I might be Thursday nights. I'm not sure. But it's just check the schedule. Listen, there's so much great stuff on Vision. Just keep watching, right? All the great Britcoms and all that stuff. And eventually, you're going to see my ugly mug <laughs> staring back at you, and that'll be the conspiracy show. And uh, there's three seasons worth there. So you can watch those and get ready for season four. And... Uh, speaking of seasons one and two, uh, I know those two, at least, seasons one and two, the complete seasons, are now available for sale or rent on uh, Amazon.com in, in uh, HD. And continuing along uh, with uh, the TV show, we just sold the program in Thailand and the Czech Republic. So there you go. We're spreading our tentacles around the world. Uh, don't forget to visit the website, strangeplanet.ca. Uh, All right. Uh, Jeffrey Gilson uh, is with us. He is originally from the United Kingdom, though he's now living in the great state of North Carolina. And uh, he was just, you know, a regular guy working in a law firm in England when suddenly his best friend turns up dead. Uh, an apparent suicide, however... Jeffrey really didn't believe the official story uh, about his good friend's death, so Jeff began asking questions, and he really hasn't stopped asking questions. His search ultimately led him to a world of spies, money laundering, 
uh, Bush Sr., Margaret Thatcher, uh, spy agencies from around, around the world, including, of course, the Central Intelligence Agency. And it all sounds like a James Bond movie, but this is real, real life. Uh, in November 1988, Hugh John Simmons, Margaret Thatcher's favorite speechwriter and the author's best friend, boss, and political mentor, turned up dead in a woodland glade a few miles from their sleepy suburban hometown 20 miles west of London. And so to learn why his best friend was murdered, Jeffrey Gilson um, journeyed into the dangerous world of international arms uh, that explains much of contemporary history. It's a quest for truth, which after 20 years of high-risk adventure, uh, coupled with uh, painstaking research and first-hand interviews, uncovered the ugly truth that for some 30 years... The various governments of Great Britain have loaned their country's military and intelligence services to the United States, allowing presidents from Reagan to Obama to pursue their covert foreign and military policies without the encumbrance of congressional oversight. James Bond stuff indeed. Jeffrey Gilson, welcome to The Conspiracy Show. How are you? I'm very fine. Thank you, Richard, for having me on The Conspiracy Show. Uh, my pleasure. And uh, the book, Maggie's Hammer. Uh, let's um, let's start off. Give us a, a few more details about uh, your friend, Hugh John Simmons. I mean, we mentioned that he was Margaret Thatcher's favorite speechwriter, uh, and he was your best friend. How did the two of you meet, and, and, and how did he become uh, so close to, uh, to the Iron Lady? Well... Um, we, we both uh, were born and raised in the same small town in, in England. Although I, I sound British and, uh, and, and indeed am British, I'm, I'm, I have dual nationality. I'm both British and American. My uh, parents are American. My father, father's family is from Boston. My mother's family is from Chicago. Um, I was born and raised in, in a small town just west of London, about 11,000 people. If you imagine uh, the Hollywood set with the, the duck pond and the village green and the Tudor houses... That's the sort of uh, village, the, the village I grew up in, 11,000 people. Hugh lived in the same town, a little bit older than me. Um, we were both interested in politics, and that's how we met up. Um, at the time, British conservative politics. Um, I've might have slightly changed since then. I'm kind of more centre-left now. Um, and there we were in, in 1988, both of us lawyers. I was working in his firm, uh, working our way towards being members of Parliament, um, part of part of. Margaret Thatcher's British Conservative Party. He um, was somewhat more active than I was. I, I, I won't say I was small town, but I wanted to be a member of Parliament. He was, he was, he was headed for the glittering prizes. He was going to be in government, very definitely. He had um, uh, considerable standing within the party. He wasn't really on, on the public radar yet because he hadn't yet become a member of Parliament. But Margaret Thatcher came to power in 1975, very much the outsider. And so she had... Um, um, various platforms in, in order to become leader of the party that weren't the usual ones. And uh, Hugh founded a grouping within the Conservative Party called the Selstrom Group. doesn't really matter. But it was through that that she um, launched her bid for the leadership. So he was quite close to her. He wrote speeches for her at the beginning, and that, and that closeness um, continued uh, when she became leader of the party. Um, and indeed, that became very important because this is how he was recruited uh, according to my investigation, in 1984, to undertake this clandestine work for her, primarily because of that close contact with her. So there we are, it's 1988, and out of the blue, uh, in November of 1988, I get a call from the local police, and Hugh is dead in a car in a local woodland glade. 
um, there was nothing immediately suspicious about the circumstances that I could work out. I'm, one of the most important aspects of this whole investigation is that, although I'm a lawyer, um, I'm not a law enforcement official, I'm not a spook, I'm not a trained investigator. I'm pretty much, other than the fact that I was a lawyer, an ordinary guy, but my best friends just turned up dead, and it doesn't make any sense to me. Um, we immediately discovered that there was some $7 million missing from the client's account for the law firm, to which only he had access. And whereas the authorities thought, well, okay, money's missing, he's dead, open and shut case, it didn't make any sense to me. The theft didn't make any sense to me. His killing himself didn't make any sense to me. Um, and not always for the best reasons. I mean, I've been grilled by one of the interviews who say, well, why is that the case? Because he was an ambitious sort. I, 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 throughout my life, I've been sort of, uh, found myself friends with people who are rogues. Um, and he was a bit of a rogue. He was ambitious. He was highly charged. He was not the sort of person who would um, go, into, go out to Woodland Glade and commit suicide. Now, I'm not saying he's not the sort of person who would have done something wrong, but he's sort of the person, if he's got caught, would not go to Woodland Glade. He'd get on a plane and go to Brazil. Right. And what was, so, the, what was the, 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 uh, the, the stated, the official cause of death, was it? Uh, um, the official cause of death was um, uh, carbon monoxide poisoning in the car. And um, how do you do that in the in the glade? And normally you would do that in a you know in a garage uh, and you clut you you yeah, close Richard, the door. Yeah, Richard, nothing nothing terribly sinister about that. Um, I, I'm not saying it's normal, but actually quite a lot of people go out to woodland glades in Great Britain and kill themselves. Uh, indeed, it's kind of ironic and sad, but um, a number of other deaths of a similar nature occurred after that on a sort of copycat basis. Uh, people saying, well, wow, I hadn't thought of that as a way to kill myself. It was very sad, but um, he did actually cause a bit of a rash of um, suicide um, by monoxide poisoning. There's nothing terribly unusual about that per se. And at the time, I, didn't, I wasn't in a position to do anything like ask for special autopsies or anything. He was cremated, which was also not unusual. The unusual nature of his death only became truly apparent much later on um, as I uh, pursued... Um, various leads, but at the time it just didn't make sense. It didn't make sense that he would kill himself. It didn't make sense that he would steal the money. He had a hugely successful law firm. He was setting up successful businesses. He was a hiccup away from being a successful politician. Why would he steal the money? Why would he commit suicide? Um, however, at the time um, the Law Society, which was the equivalent of the National Bar Association and the police, were investigating um, I thought they would find the money. I, I wasn't sure what would happen, um, but I, I assumed they would, they would find the answer, and, and that would be that. However, six months to a year afterwards, they just stopped investigating. They hadn't found the money. Um, they just stopped investigating. The next thing I know is um, they are, uh, there are literally news, uh, articles appearing in national newspapers in Great Britain uh, accusing me of being involved in some way. Um, I had meanwhile moved to America... Um, I wanted to start a new life. I'd cleared this with the police, the law society. There was no suspicion. The suspicion began after they couldn't find the money. So I basically had to get on a plane and come back to England and turn up on their doorstep. I did a lot of turning up on people's doorsteps. Um, I was listening to your last interview, and one of the things that uh, you said, which is absolutely true, is don't believe what people tell you. Don't believe what people write you. Um, if you want to find the truth, you've got to use primary sources. You've got to Put your boots on, go out, and talk to people. 
Um, otherwise, you have no credibility. You're just relying on what somebody else has written. So, uh, so, so in, in many, in, 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 in large measure, was this investigation uh, that you took on not only in an effort to get to the, the bottom of what happened to your, your good friend, uh, but also to uh, to redeem your own um, reputation. Yes, that's that's, that's very fair. Um, um, we will get into some of the places that I uh, I believe that I have uncovered later in the show. But um, I never set out to to discover an expose. I wanted to find out what happened to my friend. He had three small children. I was like an uncle to them. But at the same time, yes, I was I was trying to clear my own name. Um, and that's a pretty powerful reason to want to find the truth. I'll say. Two uh, very good reasons. Jeffrey, listen, we're going to take a time out. We'll come back okay. and continue to delve into uh, this expose. Very James Bond-like indeed. Maggie's Hammer, Jeffrey Gilson, is with us right here on The Conspiracy Show. Don't go away. When you look at the sky, ever wonder if someone's looking back? This is The Conspiracy Show with Richard Sapp. Welcome back. We are with Jeffrey Gilson, uh, who is the author of Maggie's Hammer, an expose, uh, which basically follows his journey as he investigated the supposed suicide uh, of his uh, dear friend, uh, who was a, the favorite speechwriter uh, of Margaret Thatcher, British Prime, Prime Minister Margaret Thatcher. And this led him into a, um, into a world of illegal arms deals, political slush funds, high-level corruption, British and Britain's a 30-year secret role as America's hired uh, gun. Uh, so, because we don't have, uh, you know, the full three hours that, that this deserves, uh, we have to sort of, you know, just hit the high notes here. Uh, when did you start to, when did the uh, the trail really start to get hot for you, and when did you start to piece things together and really did well, find out who your friend really was? Basically, in the summer of 1989, um, I, as I said, I was... Um, Articles started appearing in the national British newspapers saying, Lawyer flees to America, which was me. Um, I contacted the Law Society. They said, well, we can't find the money, so we're looking for accomplices. You top the bill. So I got on a plane, came back to England, which um, I discovered, among many other things, um, if, you, if you work outside the box, if you think outside the envelope, people get very nervous about this. Um, I requested a meeting with the law society. There were about eight of them on one side of the table, me on the other. They were a little shifty about why I, wanted, why, why I was there. I said, well, I'm trying to find out some answers. During the course of this interview, it, it slips out that they can't find the $7 million, but oops, they might have found $15 million that wasn't supposed to be there at all. And that was the point at which I realized something else was going on. I had no clue what something else was going on. Um, but their investigation wound down. When their investigation wound down, the lead investigator met with me privately, and he was very frightened. And then fear is something that I, that I came across a lot in this. And I said, he wouldn't explain why he was frightened, but he, would, he wanted to meet with me, and he was very cagey. And eventually he let slip um, that it wasn't just $15 million they'd found. They found in various bank accounts um, monies totaling between 30 and $150 million. Um, and as soon as that, they had found this money, their investigation was shut down. This gentleman later left the firm that he was working with and disappeared into the into the depths of Surrey um, and, and, and won't speak to me anymore. Um, he is a very frightened man. Um, clearly something was wrong at this stage. 
I then met with his father, Hugh, Hugh Simmons' his father, John, with whom I stayed in contact until he died in 2003. And um, he, this is a man with his head very firmly screwed on. He was a former president of the British Institute of Electrical Engineers, not given to flights of fancy. But he wanted to meet with me, and I met with him, and he said, there's not very much I can tell you, but I can tell you this. I have been approached by two gentlemen of very considerable credibility, which in Great Britain probably means bureaucrats or spooks. Two gentlemen of very considerable credibility who have said to him, John Simmons, that um, the money was taken out of Hugh Simmons' bank account uh, in order to finance an operation that Hugh was engaged in with British intelligence. Well, this didn't completely come as a surprise to me. While he was alive, he had mentioned that he was with British intelligence. But Richard, this is kind of like the way people say in the bar, you know, I used to be with the SEALs. I could tell you some things, but then I'd have to kill you. Right, right, and, right. It's good know, bar talk, exactly. I took it, yeah, I took it with a pinch of salt, and sometimes things would happen around him. He'd meet people, and I was like, Hugh, why is this going on? Why am I here? And he'd say, because I want you one day to be my insurance policy, which kind of turned out to be true. Um, but at the time, I didn't, I didn't, make much of it, but when John Simmons, a man of credibility, said that to me, I said, okay, we've now got a lot of money, we've now got tales going on about British intelligence, um, it's time to, um, to look into this. There was a name that Hugh had mentioned of somebody who lived in Glasgow, and that was the only lead I had to take from, uh, from there. This guy has an incredible name, like most of the aspects of the story, um, something you just can't make up. His name is Reginald von Zugback de Sug. And you can <laughs> oh, Sounds like him. a villain from a from I Spectre. Know, but you can Google him on on um uh no, you can Google him on Google. And I went to meet him and I and as with, with so many of the characters in this story, um I wanted to meet him face to face, I wanted to grill him, I wanted to ask some questions and find out what he knew. Um good tip for people who are thinking about pursuing Stories that might end up with spooks do not turn up on their doorstep unannounced. It makes them very nervous. Um, <laughs> a rookie mistake, Jeffrey, a rookie <laughs> mistake. The details are in the book Maggie's Hammer, but let's just say it involved car chases and I got shot at. Um, eventually, after a couple of weeks, he started talking to me, which is about as surreal as it gets in this whole story. And he confirmed after a lot of uh, chit-chat and um, establishing of my bona fides. He thought I'd come to kill him. He, started, he, he admitted that he, that he was in British intelligence, he was a very senior officer, involved in all sorts of bits and pieces, and that he, that he Reggie, believed that he had been involved in something very dangerous before his death that had led to his death, and he was one of the first people to tell me that he had no reason to believe that he had committed suicide, which is the first inkling that I had of this. So this money that that, that that disappeared, uh, now you mentioned Hugh's firm. So was his firm, was this money being deposited by various fronts for British intelligence? Were they, was, he, was his firm I, laundering the I, money? I could never find out. Reggie didn't have any information. Um, one of the things that I will say is I've spoken to a number of intelligence agents. Richard, I've been doing interviews now for a month and a half. You're one of the last on this current sort of series that I'm doing. So I feel more relaxed about letting some things slip. Um, those listeners who want to buy the book Maggie's Hammer, I say this to you. I, I'm not challenging your intelligence. You're going to have to make up your own minds. I faithfully reproduce in my book what I've been told, what I've been able to gather by grilling people, um, what I've been able to unearth myself. But some of it's conflicting. 
Um, I'm dealing with intelligence agents. They are duplicitous by nature. I'm not entirely certain why some people have spoken to me. I think it's sometimes a crisis of conscience for them. I think, I hope I've managed to convince them that I, I've got no agenda other than the fact I want to find the truth. Sometimes I, uh, um, they have told me things that are out and out lies. I've been able to prove that they're lies. Uh, sometimes I think I've been used. Um, and, but through it all, where I've been able to corroborate one piece of information with another, I have a little nugget, and I hang on to that nugget. So sometimes I'm not entirely sure why I've been told what I've been told. Reggie says that he got his information from people within British intelligence. His story, if you read Maggie's Hammer, you will understand this, changed completely. And he says that's because what he was being told changed. He too was being used. There is something very deep and dark at the heart of all of this. I, I may have found some of it, but I'm not entirely sure that I found all of it, which is one of the reasons why I'm publishing the book, because I'm looking for people out there to help. However, he did say he believed that he was involved in an operation. He believed he died because of that operation. It was Reggie's view and remains Reggie's view that Hugh did not go out to that woodland glade to commit suicide. He went out to that woodland glade to meet with someone who was going to spirit him out of the country. According to Reggie, he had $3 million on him in cash, and um, the person double-crossed him, and he was killed. Um, we have no proof for that. That's simply Reg Reggie's information from, from inside British intelligence. After that, Reggie pretty much um, didn't want to talk to me anymore. Um, I spent several years researching as much as I possibly could. If you go to the bibliography in Maggie Sam, you'll find about 350 pay, 50 books that I read, trying to find any circumstances that would match what Reggie had told me about events that you may have been involved in in Eastern Europe and or in the Lebanon. Um, eventually, that I mean, every time I found anything that m might possibly have fit the circumstances. I wrote to the author, contacted them, telephoned them, whatever. And eventually I contacted an Israeli intelligence officer called Ari ben Menashe, who is quite well known and controversial, and wrote to him and said, I read your book. Um, there's something in here that could fit the circumstances. I don't think he had anything to do with the arms dealing in Iraq, but maybe he did. Ari contacted me two days later by telephone in Atlanta, Georgia, and said, funny thing, I got your name's friend on a list. Uh, we uh, have been, this list is of people we believe were involved in arms dealing with Iraq. We were interested in them. This name never meant anything to us before until you contacted us. Now we're looking into it. I went to meet with him twice in Montreal, and that's when I discovered the full extent of the arms dealing that you had been engaged in on behalf of Mrs. Thatcher. I'm kind of drawing to a close here because I'm just wondering if we're about to come to a break. We are. We, we are. Okay. And, and thank you for well, your, your terrific uh, broadcasting acumen and <laughs> making my job easier. But let me, uh, as we head into a break, let me um, ask you this. Uh, here we are, late 80s. The, the Cold War is drawing to a close. Yeah. Uh, we're just a couple of years away from the uh, the, the, uh, the wall collapsing, the, the Soviet Union uh, imploding, or so we're told. Um, but in light of that, and 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 what's going on? Why would, why should we be surprised? Uh, I mean, we, we'd be surprised if we, we knew one of our intimate friends or or, or a good, an acquaintance was involved in in this. But should we be surprised, uh, for example, that uh, MI5 or MI6 is cooperating with the CIA and and uh, uh, involved in arms? I mean, you know, we we know about the. Uh, 
the um, Iran-Contra and, and all of these things that were going on. Why would we be surprised by this story, uh, I mean, unless it happened to somebody that we knew personally? Well, that's a very good question. And I, I think the answer probably is um, we're not surprised. Um, and my story isn't, isn't, isn't really, and I'll be very honest, my story isn't about trying to surprise people. It is trying to set it in a human context. Um, I'm an ordinary guy. My, I thought my friend was a reasonably ordinary, ordinary guy, although we were involved in politics. And one day he turns up dead, and I follow a trail, and I find myself in the very heart of something which we read about in newspapers, but we don't expect to be happening to our very best friend. Um, if that's a story that interests you, the book will interest you. If it doesn't interest you, then it probably won't. However, the one thing that I think will interest you, if that story doesn't interest you, is that where it took me presents what we, what we believe we know about Eastern Europe, Iran, and Iraq in a very different light. All right. Well, we will certainly uh, try to explore that aspect of it as much as we can in the time that remains. Uh, Jeffrey Gilson is with us. The book is Maggie's Hammer. Uh, you were a conservative um, you, you, since then. Perhaps as a result of this, you've sort of moved left of center. I, I have to admit, and this may not earn me many uh, friends, but I was kind of an admirer of, of uh, Maggie. I thought she was exactly what England needed at the time. Uh, and I look around at you know certain places in the world, and I think you know. Greece, for example, wow, they really need a, a Maggie Thatcher. Uh, is how did your impression of her change? I mean, was she? It sounds I, to me I like she was handled. My, she I was an outsider. That my impression of her did change um, so, so much as my priorities changed. Um, and what you, you the interesting? It's interesting you make the analogy with Greece because that's pretty much where the new take on what happened in the eighties and since comes in. Because, and I didn't know this until I started. I mean, Harry says, yeah, your friend was dealing an arms deal. Your friend was uh, heavily involved in a small team of people around Margaret Thatcher, engaged, amongst other things, in arms dealing and laundering money back to Margaret Thatcher. And I, I'm, I approach most of the stuff rather skeptically. And I'm like, wait, wait a minute. Whatever you think of Margaret Thatcher, she was three times elected prime minister of Great Britain. She's an icon. You may hate her, you may love her, but she's an icon. I can't really believe that she would soil her hands with money from arms kickback. Is that really it? And he said, no, there's a lot more to it. And he helped me to understand what there was about it. And indeed, through him, I met other people who painted a bigger picture. And the picture was essentially this. In 1979, when Margaret Thatcher first came to power, Great Britain was Greece. Uh, Mm -hmm. We were bankrupt. Sorry? Yes, no, I was just saying, indeed, I, yeah. I agree, yes. I mean, we, we, were, we were bankrupt. Um, our public finances uh, were out of money, our military was out of money, our intelligence services were out of money, our, our industry was on its knees. And the first thing that Margaret Thatcher did was turn British industry around by literally turning plowshares into swords and focusing the attention of British industrialists on making arms. And Britain is now the number five arms exporter in the world, which may not sound very good, but we're a very small country. Um, at the time, we were not the number five were arms, arms exporter in the world. One in five of every Britain that is employed is now employed either directly or indirectly with the arms industry. It's huge in Great Britain. Um, to the extent that the trade union movement, which is uh, admittedly socialist, supports the arms trade 
because it provides so many uh, jobs for its members. And um, we are just one big arms industry. Um, in the 80s, when, when, when she was expanding the arms industry, the biggest clients for Great Britain's arms were in the Middle East. There was a war raging between Iran and Iraq. It lasted between 18 and 1988. Uh, they, both countries were embargoed by the United Nations from receiving uh, offensive military technology. So we just sold it to them by the back door. And that's one of the most important things I discovered about the arms industry, I didn't realize this, which is that if you're serious about selling arms to the world, you can't just sell to the nice people, and you can't just sell by the front door. You need a back door. And what Ari ben Menashe made clear to me over many, many conversations was, he was a primary part of the team of people that Margaret Thatcher put together to service that back door. And his a special talent was money laundering. He had basically three things going for him. He knew Margaret Thatcher well, he was a lawyer who was trained in money laundering, and he was a senior officer in British intelligence, to which you add one other thing, that he was just slightly off the radar, so nobody noticed him, which is why when I went to see Ari, he said, we had his name, but it didn't mean anything to us. And as soon as you, we, we put that name together with our facts, we realized that he was a primary um, author of the various pipelines that were set up in the 80s to launder money back to politicians in Great Britain and elsewhere. All right, Jeffrey, we'll take a time out. Jeffrey, we could okay. call you perhaps the man who knew too much. When we come back, more of Maggie's Hammer right here on The Conspiracy Show. Stay with us. The truth is not out there. It's right here. The Conspiracy Show with Richard Sarrett. Uh, Jeffrey Gilson stays with us. Uh, the book is called Maggie's Hammer, uh, and it's a it's a murder mystery, uh, which leads into another world of illegal arms deals, political slush funds, high-level corruption, Britain's 30-year secret role as America's hired gun. That's an interesting uh, uh, aspect that I'd like to explore. Britain's 30-year secret role as America's hired gun. I mean, that's that's really, you know, the, the, the story of James Bond, isn't it? I mean... Well... Yeah, yes, it is. It is, Richard, and it's a little bit difficult to believe. Um, I'm, I, during the course of doing these interviews, people people have said much the same thing as you. Who cares? What's new? What's different? And I, I don't pretend um, that I'm saying anything new or anything different overall. I have a story. I'm telling it. Um, I'm trying to find the truth. And the reason I'm publishing at the moment is because I'm, I need help from people in trying to get to the truth about, about Hugh Simmons. Where we had got to, where I had got to, in talking with Ari ben Menashe and people who led from him, is the Margaret Thatcher was expanding the arms industry in Great Britain in the 80s. Um, in order to do that, she needed to have a back door, and Hugh was a part of the team that she put together to service that back door. Um, she expanded the arms industry primarily by helping to organize arms deals through to Iraq and Iran. People say, yeah, okay, we know about Iran-Contra. Actually, you do know about Iran-Contra. Iran-Contra was a sideshow. It was a deliberate setup. Um, uh, the Israelis set up Oliver North to take the fall. He sold about a billion dollars worth of completely useless arms to Iran. Um, useless because they were all stamped with the Israeli defense industry logo. It was a sideshow, while the real pipeline, called the Blue Pipeline, was being organized through London on behalf of the United States, totaling some $80 billion in arms. Same time, Great Britain was at the center of arming Iraq. Um, I am told by Ari and others that 
Hugh Simmons was a major cog in the machine, laundering the money back from those arms deals into, into London. Now, I didn't discover this overnight. This took 27 years. And believe you me, I was skeptical every inch of the way. This is my best friend. I had absolutely no idea that this was going on. Yes, there were large periods of time when he wasn't around, but I had no idea this was going on and going on in London. Um, but at the same time as Margaret Thatcher was doing that with the arms industry, um, she was faced with the military and an intelligence services who had helped to get to power, but who were themselves short of money. So she literally, in the 80s, started pimping them out to the United States in order that the United States could conduct certain of its covert foreign policy abroad away from congressional oversight. Anyone who's read the history of the 70s and the 80s will know that after the 70s, with the CIA scandals, um, the American intelligence activity was very heavily um, under the scrutiny of Congress. Using a surrogate like Great Britain allowed all sorts of things like arms deals and um, covert activities to take place without the scrutiny of Congress. Again, I, 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 I heard this. I, I, couldn't, I couldn't believe it. I went back to my British sources. Um, and Reggie, uh, in, in a very strange and surreal conversation, told me uh, quite bluntly uh, when I was living in Atlanta that Hugh had been trained to kill. And that one of the uh, services he undertook, in addition to money laundering, was actually um, removing people who were um, in the way of what Great Britain was trying to do for America. Now, again, you may not believe this. You don't have to believe it. Buy the book, read it, make up your own mind. Well, I, I believe um, it 100%, I believe it. Because one of the things that, that it's interesting that that, that uh, happened after the... Uh, I mean, the, the, I think the Cold War was, you know, winding down before the the, uh, the Iron Curtain fell. And, and yes. so what happened is a lot of these intel services, the CIA, and I'm sure MI5, MI6... They were no longer spying in, in East Germany. They had to find something to do. And in many cases, they were hired uh, by private corporations to spy on other corporations. So they became hired guns. Uh, and so this fits perfectly in, in, into, into what you're saying. It wasn't necessarily about, you know, let's, let's spy on the Russians anymore. Well, uh, let's Go ahead. That's a very important point, Richard, because um, one of the things that people have said to me is, okay, well, this is a fascinating spy story based in the 80s. Um, one of the things I've learned, uh, and I've learned this the hard way, is that if you want to understand what's going on in the world in the 90s, in the noughts, in the teens, um, and it's the same countries, it's Russia, it's Ukraine, it's Eastern Europe, it's Iran, Iraq, Syria, and Lebanon. If you want to understand what is going on there now, and goodness knows sometimes we don't understand, all roads lead back to uh, the 80s, and most of the roads lead through London. I didn't realize this, but they really do. Um, this activity began in the 80s. It continued into the 90s. One of the big questions I know that Americans had uh, in, in 2003 is, why on earth was a supposedly upstanding left-wing British Prime Minister, Tony Blair, figuratively in bed with George Bush and involved in the invasion of Iraq? Um, no one suggests that Tony Blair and Great Britain provided... Um, much by way of military support to George, George Bush. What he did provide was credibility. Why? Why would he do it? And the answer is because the Americans knew where the skeletons were hidden. We'd been doing their dirty work for so long, we couldn't stop. 
And it wasn't just the overt stuff that was going on in 2003, it was the covert stuff. And that covert stuff is still going on now with ISIS in Syria. Um, America can't be seen to be arming some of the opposition groups in Syria, which aren't ISIS, but Great Britain can. And just recently, Seymour Hersh wrote an article saying Britain is covertly supplying uh, the opposition group known as al-Nusra on behalf of America. These networks, as you say, they continue. The arms deals continue. And you say, well, okay, so what? Um, if you have a country like Great Britain, which is massively dependent on the arms industry, and its politicians are dependent upon arms kickbacks, then without wanting to use terms like military-industrial complex, which annoy me, um, you definitely have a country that's not interested in peace. Um, it has something else going on. And many of the arms deals that we uh, undertook in the 90s and the noughts, America is now undertaking itself because Congress has loosened the knots somewhat. If there was massive corruption associated with British arms deals, there's no reason to believe that there hasn't mass massive arms corruption associated with, for instance, the $40 billion deal between the United States and Saudi Arabia. Same countries, same people, same things happening. And this is affecting the foreign policy of America. And if you go back to the 80s and you work your way forward, perhaps by reading my book, Maggie's Hammer, you will begin to understand some of the things that are going on that don't make any sense. All right. And as Smedley Butler said, war is indeed a racket. You want to make arms, you need customers. How do you get customers? You foment conflict. Back with more of Jeffrey Gilson, Maggie's Hammer, right here on The Conspiracy Show. Don't go away. Keeping an eye on the new world order. This is The Conspiracy Show with Richard Sarrett. Jeffrey Gilson stays with us. Maggie's Hammer is the book, and Jeffrey uh, has been uh, active uh, formerly in the British Conservative Party before pursuing a commercial career in public relations, and he's here discussing his investigation into the mysterious death of his friend, which uncovered another world of illegal arms deals, political slush funds, high-level corruption, and Britain's 30-year secret role as America's hired gun. You mentioned Tony Blair, and it's interesting that the names change, the parties that occupy number 10 uh, change, but the, uh, the, uh, the MO remains the same, which tends to suggest uh, that there is sort of this uh, permanent national security state uh, that is in power, whether it's in London or Washington. I mean, we often accuse countries like Syria of being a national security state. Uh, but really, it, 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 I mean, is that the takeaway here that, you know, that it, really politics, ideology has nothing to do with this? Well, Richard, I, 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 I hate to use words like conspiracy theory and military-industrial complex, but um, those of your listeners who, who follow some of the foreign news will know that in Great Britain just recently... Um, there was a bit of an upset when the leadership of the Labour Party was undertaken, and a rank outsider, kind of like Bernie Sanders, took over. The, the, the Brits like to describe him as a hard-left politician called Jeremy Corbyn. Within days of his taking over, and this caught even Britons by surprise, um, leaders of, 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 of um, Britain's army, Britain's military, released a press statement saying that um, if Jeremy Corbyn became Prime Minister, they would feel duty-bound to take steps to remove him. This is the British Army. At the same time, leaders of British intelligence services said they would feel they would not, they would not have to share intelligence 
with Jeremy Corbyn because they believed him to be a national security risk. Wow. Um, this <laughs> has never happened before. No one... The, the London Guardian newspaper, a respected national newspaper, for the very first time started talking about military-industrial complex. They were shattered that people were talking like this because in the last 30 years, um, so much of the nation's economy has become dependent upon its military and intelligence services and upon the arms industry that much as we may not like to use the terms, they pretty much run the show. And that's why Tony Blair did what he did. And if you, uh, and I've taken the time to, to look at David Cameron's government, some of the people in David Cameron's government are people I know. We started off in politics at the same time. And some of the people who are involved in his government now are people who um, I discovered were intimately associated with the um, less salubrious aspects of British arms industry back in the 80s and the 90s. So it's still happening. Politicians come and go, the color comes, it may change, but what is in, in place is still happening. Um, one of the things I mentioned is that I don't know everything, that's why I've published the book now. I'm hoping there are people who will read it and maybe may see a name they recognize or circumstances they understand. I am learning new twists all the time. Um, as we draw close to the top of the hour, I'll tell you one devastating twist that I came to me just, just in the last couple of weeks. As a result of doing these interviews, because I simply hadn't thought about it before, Ari ben Menashe was my primary Israeli uh, intelligence source. I met him. I had dinner with his wife. I kind of like the guy. Um, he's a bit of a rogue, but I kind of like him. He describes himself as a bad person. Well, of course he is. He's a, he's a spook. Um, he began by saying to me that he knew of Hugh Simmons because he was a name on the list. And in, after a couple of years of speaking with him, I finally confronted him in a hotel in... Montreal and said, I, I think you're lying to me. Well, along with not turning up on people's doorsteps, do not tell a spook that they're lying. Uh, they get very unhappy about that, and you start counting the number of stories in the hotel that you're up because you're wondering how fast you're going to hit, it's going to take, how long it's going to take before you hit the ground. Um, well, anyway, so he, he froze and said, Why do you say that? And I said, Because the stuff you're telling me, you couldn't tell me unless you actually knew Hugh Simmons. And he said, Okay, I, I knew him. Well, that's not what you've been saying up till now. Okay, well, I knew him, but he was, you know, with a smile, he said, he was using a different name. Well, Harry kind of went quiet on me for, for 20 years after that, and he got back in touch with me when I came time to publish the book and very kindly provided a quote on the back, which was not something he told me before, which was that, um, um, that um, Hugh had been responsible for laundering money back from arms deals in Iraq to the Conservative Party, and from arms deals in Iran to the Labour Party, which um, I hadn't known. And I put this to Harry, I said, that's not what you told me before. And he said, well, I'm telling you now. And I went back and looked at some bits and pieces that I hadn't really thought about, because the name was just a name on a list. And in rereading re Harry's book, um, I reminded myself that in 1986, Harry was specifically tasked by the Prime Minister of Israel, according to him, if you can believe it, Yitzhak Shamir, with stopping the flow of arms to Iraq. And Ari had gone around the world talking to various people that I hadn't taken any interest in because they didn't figure in what I was doing and uh, uh, investigating, visiting those people and making sure that they stopped their involvement in the supply of arms to Iraq. And according to Ari, some of those people were assassinated. 
Um, and in uh, the late 1988, according to Ari in his book, various assassination squads were sent into Europe to remove people and take them out if they were involved in the arms sales to Iraq. Well, I know it sounds stupid because why didn't this occur to me before? Guys, I'm not, you know, I don't, I don't have all the answers. I just, one guy trying to find out the answers. But I realized that that's the same time Hugh had turned up dead. And it occurred to me that if, if Ari's task was to stop the arms, the selling of arms to Iraq, and he'd known my friend, and he'd known what he was up to, and he'd known that he was supplying arms to Iraq, then did Ari have something to do with right. stopping Hugh exactly. selling arms to Iraq? Now, it might strike your listeners as rather stupid that it hadn't occurred to me before, but Ari is now being published by the same publisher as me. He's a mate, kind of, and he's a primary source. We've been invited to be on radio shows together, but I've had to write to Ari in the last two weeks, probably the third stupid thing you shouldn't do, which is write to his radio intelligence officers in this way and say, I have reason to believe you may be involved with the death of my friend, which you've not told me before. And if we go on to a radio show together, we're going to be talking about that. Wow, you are really walking on thin ice, don't you think, Jeffrey? Oh, I should imagine I was walking on thin ice a long time ago, Richard. But, you know, you do what you have to do. It's a, it's a twisted world, isn't it? Um, I mean, how, how is... It's a real world. It's the real world, indeed. This is what I say to people. When, when people use the word conspiracy, I say, no, it's just real politic. It's the way the world works. It's, you know, the, it's not like there are people with black hats and white hats. Uh, they're all, you know, sort of gradients of the color gray. And in many cases, you know, they're, we're complicit too because you can say that there are thugs, but there are thugs. Uh, well, and, and, the, and the other thing, Richard, is that not only is it not white and black, it's not people who look like James Bond. They're people who probably live next door to the people listening to this program. I don't know if you've ever seen the movie Body of Lies with Leonardo DiCaprio and Richard uh, Russell Crowe. No, I haven't. Doesn't matter. Um, Leonardo DiCaprio is the dashing guy off in the Lebanon, killing people and wooing the women. And Russell Crowe is his controller, who's sitting um, back in America with a headset much like I'm wearing here. And throughout the movie... He's taking his kids to school, chatting away to Leonardo. Yeah, he could take the shot now. He's off, he's, he's off shopping, he's doing the laundry, he's mowing the lawn. And folks, that's what intelligence officers are like. They're ordinary people. They're living next door to you. If my story means anything to you, it is that if there's things going on around you that don't make sense, the chances are they don't make sense. If there's people around you that don't make sense, the chances are they don't make sense. Um... Don't leave it to other people to investigate. Investigate yourself, because these are ordinary people with mortgages and kids, but these ordinary people are conducting your foreign policy, and you have a right to know what's going on. People wonder why I'm still doing this after 27 years. Yeah, I still want to find out the truth for his family. His kids are no longer kids, they're grown up. But actually, I've become kind of angry um, when... Things go on in the Middle East that we don't understand. They're being undertaken by people who are supposed to represent us. And we deserve a government that's as decent as we are. And the only way we can get a government that's as decent as we are is by finding the things that don't make sense and worrying them like a dog worries a bone. Are you, at all, are you at all angry um, 
at your friend, Hugh John Simmons? That is a very good question, Richard, because most people say I should be angry at Harry, and I'm not angry at Harry. Harry was doing his job. I am angry with my mate. He should never have got involved in this. He had three small children. Um, he got involved for whatever reasons he got involved. To make money, I don't know. But his family never had a vote. And that is also why I'm angry at the British government. And uh, if you read my book, you'll find out some of the interesting conversations I've had with uh, very senior civil servants in Great Britain. I'm angry with them because at the time of his death, officially or unofficially, he was acting on behalf of the British Prime Minister. His family was left destitute. That's wrong. And when you read headlines about, you know, the, the war on terror and the threat from ISIS and what's going on, this quagmire in Syria and, and, and Iraq and, and uh, you know, nuclear discussions with Iran, uh, I'm, I'm, I'm guessing that you, you, you just can't, you can't read those, those stories or accounts with a straight face because you have this behind-the-scenes view of the world now. Um, so, so say that again? I'm just wondering how you view sort of the, you know, the, the various, um, the crisis in the Middle East and the, 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 the war on terror and, and uh, the, the, the supposed threat posed by ISIS. I mean, knowing what you now know about the way the world works and how, you know... Uh, one, these... one, of, one, of, one, of the one of the frightening things is, is, is reading what's going on in the headlines, and I never thought I would end up being this person because I was always thought it was those strange people over there. But the strange thing is that I read the headlines, and I know what's going on behind the headlines, and that's kind of frightening. Um, it's like, uh-huh, yeah, I, I, I speak with my friends, and I say, okay, this is what you're reading in the newspapers, but actually, these people, this goes back to the 80s, it goes back to the 90s, the Brits were doing this, the Americans were doing the other, and that's why this is happening. And the next thing that's going to happen is the other, and it happens, and they say, how did you know? I said, I really wish I didn't know. But that's one of the um, byproducts of engaging in this to the extent that I did have done and with the intensity that I have done is you learn stuff you don't want to know and you understand stuff that you, you, you really don't want to know. And there's no going back. Jeffrey Gilson... Ah, uh, no, there's no going back. In fact, there's no going back to Europe because I'm told it's not a safe place for me to be. Uh, I can imagine. Well, stay safe and thank you for this. Maggie's Hammer, Jeffrey Gilson. Great meeting you, Thank Jeffrey. you, Richard. Thank you. Uh, thanks to Ian Robertson, Albert Finzel, and we'll be back brand, a brand new show next week. Hope you'll be along for the ride. In the meantime, don't be afraid. There's nothing concealed that won't be revealed and nothing hidden that won't be made known. What you hear in the dark, speak in the light, what I say in a whisper. Proclaim from the housetops. Move over, Aphrodite. I'm coming home. Good night. <laughs>